Welcome to another edition of the Sabbath School Study Hour right here in the Granite Bay Hilltop Seventh-day Adventist Church. My name is Pastor Sean Brumman and Associate Pastor here in this church and it is so good to be able to have you join us in the greater Sacramento area of California. Special welcome to all those who are local members, online members, friends across the country and of course we have friends around the world that join us as we continue to study one of my favorite books in the Bible, which is the book of Ephesians. We are in lesson number 10 this week, and uh, we continue to make our way through the Sabbath school quarterly, and, uh, and it's just entitled simply by the Bible book itself, Ephesians. So today we're gonna to be looking at a very important passage in the fifth chapter, but before we actually look at our study and open with prayer, uh, I want to invite you to take advantage of a free gift offer that we have for you here during our study. Now, this is one of my favorite study guides. If you're married or you're considering marriage, this is worth gold. And, uh, and so go ahead and take advantage of this free gift offer. If you are in the United States, Canada, or any of the U.S. territories, all you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 1-866-788-3966. Again, that's 1-866-788-3966. And ask for free offer number 164. And uh, one of our agents will be happy to be able to pass that on to you in the mail. Now, if you are in the United States and you have self-service, uh, just go ahead and uh, text the code uh, SH046, and you want to dial that to 40544. And that will get you a link to a free digital download of the very same study and book that we have to offer you for free today. If you are outside Canada and the US and you would still like a digital download, you can still access this. So this is accessible worldwide. Uh, all you have to do is get internet access and go to the website study.aftv dot org slash sh046 and uh, and again that will get you a direct link on the internet to a free copy of our free gift offer here uh, today well friends before we get into our study i want to invite you to pray with me as we ask the lord to be with us father god we want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to study a word we thank you so much for the truths that you give to us including the counsel that you give to husbands and to wives and the blessings that you've designed and desire to be able to bring into each and every marriage. Please help us, give us understanding, an extra measure of your spirit that you might teach us and that you might help us to see and come and live by the things in which you have revealed to us. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen. All right, friends, I want to invite you to open up to the key passage that we're looking at this week, which is Ephesians chapter uh, 5, and uh, we're going to start with verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're pointed to in the quarterly, and, uh, and we are starting with verse 21. Now, verse 21 is kind of a transition, but it's also a, uh, an ending to the first section as, as God is inspiring the pen of the Apostle Paul to give counsel to all believers within the Christian church, in this case, in the area of Ephesia. 
Ephesus, I should say. And, uh, and when we get to verse 21, God gives us an important way to uh, approach each other as believers. It says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And so God tells us that we should always submit to one another as a general rule and principle, always counting each other, as Paul said in other parts, more important than ourselves. And so there's just a beautiful counsel there that is given. But then when you get to verse 22, God continues on and now he zeroes in on the marriage relationship. And that's that special relationship between a husband and wife. In verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water and by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Wow. You know, last time I uh, had the privilege of teaching Sabbath School Study Hour in the last quarterly, um, I had a two-part series or lesson study on the mark of the beast. And if you were with us during that or have studied the subject in the past, you know very well that that's not a very politically correct and easy subject to be able to present. In fact, it's one of the most politically incorrect uh, studies and conclusions that the Bible actually teaches us because it directly involves the largest, oldest church with the most Christians and members involved in it in a very negative light. And now here I am standing before you with this new Sabbath School Quarterly and I'm finding myself teaching on yet another very super politically incorrect passage and truth that the Bible reveals to us. Uh, different people respond at different levels to the words in which we read here. Uh, and yet, nevertheless, uh, it comes from Jesus. And because of that, we know that it is a very beautiful truth. It's one that's designed to be helpful. It reveals the divine design that God has given to our relationships in the home, in particular in that between the husband and the wife. Now, it has been my experience that this topic is not only controversial with the unbelieving world, but even in a conservative end-time church of prophecy, such as the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I have found that this topic can also be a very hot button. It's, uh, it's not one that uh, some uh, get up in the morning and run to and, uh, and want to study and meditate on. But again, friends, nevertheless... God has his best intentions for us in all his counsels, including the counsel that we have just read here in Ephesians in chapter 5. Well, this is a very beautiful passage, very deep. Not only is it giving some very direct counsel and principles concerning the relationship and roles of the husband and the wife within the home, 
but he parallels that to the relationship between Christ and the church. And uh, Christ is the head of the church, even as the husband is the head of the wife. And he gives this parallel all the way through. Very deep, very beautiful. By the way, the quarterly does a very good job on two of the days of this week's lesson study when it talks about, um, when it talks about this, uh, this relationship between Christ and the church. Because of the lack of time and because that is not nearly as misunderstood and controversial as the other truth that is being brought to light here, and because I believe that that truth is going to be more helpful to many more people, I've been led to be able to spend our time here today looking at the counsels that are directly concerning the husband and the wife. And I pray and trust that it will be helpful to you and to your marriage, and it will be the better for it. Well, as we go to this passage uh, between Adam and Eve, or between a husband and wife, I should say, it's actually pointing us to the origins of mankind, pointing us all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman that was ever created. Yes, this passage points us all the way back to the beginning of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And, uh, and sure enough, it is here that we find God's creation of the very first man, uh, then, of course, as many of us know the record of the Bible, God used one of the ribs from that man and created the very first woman. And then God created the institution of marriage and brought them together and the two became one flesh, even as we just read Paul quoting from that in the Ephesians passage that we're studying here uh, today. Not only did God create the man, the woman, and the marriage in those first chapters, but he also created the family unit because as we come towards the end of the first chapter, Second chapter, kind of revisiting that same ground with some extra information and details, including the creation of the marriage institution. When we come to near the end of the first chapter, we find there that indeed God speaks to Adam and Eve as already husband and wife and says, therefore be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so we find here in the first chapters of Genesis that God also created the family unit. Uh, as Adam and Eve were invited to be able to reproduce themselves and to fill the earth with human beings upon the entire planet. And so the original order of things introduces Adam as the head of mankind. Now for some of you, you already know this. For some of you, you may have not studied this in its full biblical context. And so the context in its fullness in Ephesians chapter 5 is best understood from where it's reflecting, which is those first chapters of Genesis. And when we look at the original order of things, indeed, Adam is introduced as the head of mankind. This is why God called Adam out of the bushes. Adam and Eve were both in the bushes when God came down to visit them in the cool of the, of the afternoon, and, uh, and as he had done on other days. But this time it was much different because as Genesis chapter 3 records for us, it tells us that Adam and Eve had both sinned. They had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had commanded them very specifically and warned them very lovingly not to eat from. So we know the story. Eve is the one that first had sinned. She is the one that first was beguiled or deceived by the serpent and the devil that was behind and speaking through that serpent and ate the tree of the, uh, from the tree. And then, of course, we know that she convinced then her husband to also eat it as well. And yet we find that even though Eve is the one that first sinned and she's the one that convinced Adam to follow suit, we find that God calls Adam out of the bushes first. Now, friends, it doesn't spell it out for us but it very clearly implies to you and I that God is holding Adam accountable 
not only for his sin, but also for the sin of his wife that he had given and created for him. Now, he also calls her accountable because we all stand before God alone at the judgment day and our decisions that we make to be sure. But in that marriage relationship and because Adam is introduced in these chapters as the head of mankind, he holds Adam accountable for the family's uh, successes as well as failures first. This is also why the Bible assumes that we know that Adam is the head of humanity when, they, when it calls Christ the second Adam that brings life to a fallen and broken mankind and planet. We find though that in a couple of clear verses, this concept is actually revealed in a couple of chapters of the Bible. The first one is Romans chapter 5. But God even names it even more specifically for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so I'd like to quote from a couple of verses there that helps us to be able to see that truth. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22. So for all in Adam shall die. Now, of course, this is revealing some of those harsh realities that God had warned Adam and Eve about before they sinned, that when you sin, you shall surely die, for the wages of sin is death, as the book of Romans clarifies. And not only that, but the, worst, the news gets even worse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, friends, we find that the Bible is revealing that all of us sin, all of us are guilty before God, all of us are born with a, with a defunct character, that all of a defective character, all of us find ourselves being born with a bent towards sin and rebellion against God and the things of God when we do not have the Holy Spirit and choose by faith to walk with him. And so it says, for an Adam all die, but even so in Christ, the second Adam shall be made alive. Verse 45 in the same chapter makes it even clear. It says, as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And the context of that statement is obviously talking about Adam being compared to that of Jesus. Adam was the original. Uh, he was the original head of mankind because he blew it. Jesus had to come in and replace Adam as the head of mankind and redeem mankind at the same time. And so Jesus, who is always the divine, eternal son of God, is now the human head and Son of God as well, but the head of humanity. Now, because Adam was the head of humanity, he was also naturally placed as the head of the home, the head of the wife, the head of the marriage, the head of the family. Um, Jesus makes it very clear, both in this passage in Ephesians as well as in others, that God has always designed for the man or the husband to be the head of the marriage, the head of the wife, and the head of the household. Now, why can we conclude that? Well, we started to look at that already when we looked at Adam being called out of the bushes first and being held accountable for the sin and failure of the family. That certainly is a very clear indicator. Uh, there's also some other indicators as well. Uh, first off, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, God spells it out very clearly and just says that Adam was created first and not Eve. And so the fact that the order of creation was man and then woman is an indicator as Paul, under the inspiration of God in 1 Timothy, is clarifying for us. Also, when we look at the second chapter of Genesis, we find there that God lined up all the original species that he had created upon the planet 
and he had Adam name each one as they paraded by. After he had named all of the species of the planet, then he created woman, which was the pinnacle of creation to be sure, as the companion, as the equal, as the one that was on the same plane in equality and in, uh, in value. Um, but certainly that's not an indication of the roles. Adam was the head of humanity as well as the head of the marriage. In Genesis chapter two and verse 24, says that a man shall leave his parents and be joined to his wife. And so again, the focus is on the man in this particular case. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, lest all these other indicators just are not clear enough for you and I, we've just read it in verse 23 of the Ephesians passage, and indeed it tells us that the reason that the man is, uh, the woman is to submit to the husband is because he is the head of the wife. And, uh, and so, of course, we can't get any clear than that. And friends, this theme is found not only through the Old Testament, as some people are trying their very best and doing some theological gymnastics to be able to keep it in the Old Testament. The fact is that this theme as the man of the head of humanity and also of the home, the wife, the marriage, and the, and the household, the family, is found all the way through the Old Testament and through, lo and behold, what we're reading here, some of the clearest passages in the Bible are found after Jesus sealed the New Testament era and the New Testament covenant uh, with you and I as believers. And, uh, and so friends, this is a theme that is so prevalent all the way through from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And, uh, and I think it hurts God's heart when we try to use gymnastics to be able to interpretive gymnastics and theological gymnastics to be able to, to circumvent the divine design and counsel that God has given to husbands and wives. And husbands and wives that fall for these gymnastics, I feel and firmly believe that, uh, that are falling short of the fulfillment and the, and the strength and the joy that God wants to bring into the marriage. Friends, think about it. Even in our modern culture today, a bride typically surrenders her name and adopts her husband's name. Why does she do that? Why is it typically almost, well, it's, I've, I've heard of one rare exception on that. But besides that one rare exception, friends, you can find of 99.9% .9 or more of all marriages, it's the wife that inherits and adopts the last name or the family name of the husband. And again, we have to ask ourselves, even outside of the church, they do that. Why is it that we do that? Well, why is it that most cultures do that around the world? Even in our modern culture? Well, could it be that it's a sign of her submission to his leadership and saying that I am coming into your home and we're making a home together to be sure and we're lifetime friends, companions, equals. But nevertheless, I'm submitting to you as my head, as my husband. Whenever we see a picture of a couple going to sleep at night and they're cuddling up together in bed, I can't recall ever once the man kind of snuggling up on the chest of the wife and looking up at her as they kind of talk about the day or say their goodnights to each other and tell them ideally how much they love each other. No. We always find that the woman is always laying her head on the chest of the man. Okay, below him and on the chest. Why is that, friends? Well, again, I would suggest that this is an unconscious, for most of us and for most couples, this is an unconscious but very real evidence that there's something in the heart of the mind of every man and woman that tells us 
that a woman submits to the leadership and the strength of the man. Now, when this is in the right context, and we're going to flesh this out, friends, so just if you're getting a little bit uptight and, uh, and you're not breathing quite as freely as you have in the past on other topics, just take a deep breath. We're going to look at this, and it's a very beautiful picture. I want to read a quote with you, uh, from you, uh, for you, I should say, and uh, it's found um, from one of my favorite books. It's entitled um, Patriarchs and Prophets, and uh, this is from page 46 of that particular book. Its author, Ellen White, tells us this. It says, Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor to be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him. Again, friends, that protected, I believe, is symbolized by the wife that lies on the chest of the man when they're cuddling up together in bed. A part of man, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, she was his second self, showing the close union and the affectionate attachment that should exist in this relationship. And this kind of reflects that old saying that some of us still use when we introduce our wife and we say, I just want to let you know, I want to introduce you to my better half. Uh, you know, again, as the Ephesians passage here is reflecting and even quoting from Genesis 2:24, where it says, a man shall leave his father and the mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And, uh, and this is such a beautiful description of that in this book. Someone kind of, uh, I think over the years, anon anonymously has um, uh, developed a bit of a poetic reflection of these words, and they say this, someone has said that Woman was not taken from man's head to rule over him, nor from his feet to be trampled upon, but from his side, under his arm, to be protected and closest to his heart and to be loved. And so, friends, there's some very deep symbolism in the Bible and even in some of the unconscious acts and ways that husband and wives relate to each other and even find themselves snuggling to bed together in as well. Now, the Bible makes it very clear that originally there were two human beings that were created. And again, we know that's Adam and Eve. And, uh, and they are perfect and holy when God first created them. When they got up in the morning, there was no selfishness, there was no pride, there was no stubbornness. All they thought about was each other and the Lord and the great gifts that they had in the planet, perfect planet all around them that they could enjoy from day to day. They were brought together by God to become one flesh to complement each other in their different roles. Yes, God has designed different roles within the human relationship of a husband and wife from the very beginning. Now that role is much more challenging today for both of them, where we're going to talk about why. But it was originally a perfect complement of each other in the roles that they were to fill. God had wired them very differently so that they could come together and take that different wiring. And when they did that, they complemented each other and made a perfect unit. There was never any experience of power plays. They never experienced conflicts that are caused by selfishness or pride or stubbornness. There was pure joy and harmony between Adam and Eve every single day. Until, of course, that sad day when they decided to eat from the tree and disobey and disbelieve and show their disloyalty to God. They sinned 
And sadly, this ideal was very short-lived because of that. Sin entered the picture and it really messed up the home life uh, for many, if not all, homes to some measure or another. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, I want to invite you to come with me to that verse as we continue our Bible study. We want to make sure we keep our nose in the Bible. And so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. And, uh, and when we come to this verse, we're going to find here that God is speaking to the woman for the first time after her and Adam were found guilty of sinning that day. And it says, to the woman, he said, that is God, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, friends, uh, the first part of this is, uh, is telling us that there's going to be some very real pain in the, in the, in the bringing forth or labor uh, that takes place in childbearing now. And some of that pain takes place before the labor process. Certainly for most women, it's during the labor process. And, uh, and then also sometimes there's some pain in child rearing as well. Um, and so, you know, when you bring forth children, your job's just begun. You know, you bring it home and now you've got, you know, a couple of decades of, uh, of responsibility and so on. And so when it says in pain, you shall bring forth children, it's not just talking about the pain of the labor process. And again, I know firsthand through my wife, being there by her side with our two daughters that were born, there's a lot of pain that was involved with that process. Uh, but there's other pains that come with pregnancy, the labor process, stillbirths bring a lot of emotional pain, certainly miscarriages, deformities. Um, and then, of course, again, rearing, chil rearing children. Sometimes our children disappoint us. Sometimes they'll go astray and make some very painful choices that cause us a lot of pain. And so God is saying, listen, because the sin that you invited into mankind and into this planet, because it's going to be a broken world from this point on, even your home life and your marriage experience is not going to be what it used to be. But he doesn't leave us hanging, does he? He tells us how we can find ourselves in that divine de design and find as much joy and as much harmony and as much fulfillment as we possibly can. And by the way, the last uh, sentence there where it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is not saying that she's kind of googly-eyed over her husband and she's fawning over him and so on. Uh, no, this is actually much deeper than that. It's actually revealing that your desire shall be uh, uh, for your husband in regards to controlling your husband, usurping that headship that God originally had given to Adam and to all husbands that were to follow after. Now, how can we know that for certain? Well, uh, in the very next chapter, chapter 4 and verse 7, it uses the same language and it has different characters involved and different elements, but it's the same language. In this case, it's God now speaking not to Eve, as we looked at in Genesis 16, but he's actually, God is speaking to Cain, uh, the very first son that was born to that first family. And Cain was making some bad and rebellious choices. And so God in his love is appealing to him and he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. Did you pick that up, friends? Sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you, should not, but you should rule over it. Now let's go back to Genesis 3 and verse 16 and see if we can find that parallel language. God says to Eve in this case, 
your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And so we can find there's a very obvious parallelism there. And, um, and so what God is really saying in verse 16 is one of the challenges that the broken sinful nature of a wife and a woman will always bring into a marriage is that submitting to her husband will not be an easy natural thing. Uh, and so it's important for a, a wife to, uh, to be able to pray that God will write that divine design upon her heart and upon her mind that she might be able to obey God in all places and fulfill the plan that he has for her. And so there's a fallen part of every woman that now desires to rule or control or lead her husband, uh, to usurp his role and position as head and leader of the marriage and family. Uh, it's interesting, though, that the first part of this verse also reveals that broken mankind, both a broken woman and the broken man that becomes her husband, also brings his weakness and sinful nature into the marriage relationship as well. And we find that in the first part of the same verse. Genesis 3, verse 16 says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. So when he says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, and this is fleshed out quite a bit in the spirit of prophecy in some of the writings of one of my favorite authors, Ella White. And she says that this is reflecting that God is prophesying and warning Eve that one of the consequences of the sin that they brought into the planet is that um, the woman's going to suffer a lot at the hands of some very unscrupulous and very uncaring husbands and men. And uh, of course, that's happening even as we're watching and studying together, is that uh, there's women that are suffering at the hand of husbands that have no care and compassion for their, hus for their wives. Verbally abuse, sexually abuse, physical abuse is taking place right now in hundreds of homes around the world and has been in millions of homes around the world for centuries. And so this is a very sad prophecy and consequence that God is bringing before Eve. And it's also revealing in that, that every man has a sinful side to him that wants to abuse that headship, that larger strength that he brings into the relationship. Because we are finding out through this whole transgender sports competition kind of controversy that's taking place in our societies around the world that that as much as a woman can achieve uh, great feats physically within the physical sports world, the fact of the matter is that the fastest woman in the world is not nearly as fast as some of the 10th or 11th or even 100th fastest men in the world. Uh, I was hearing on the news the other day and concerned to tennis, and he's saying, just to give you an example, if you take the strongest, most successful, uh, uh, winniest woman in all of tennis, she does not compare to the 100th fastest and winniest uh, rated uh, man in the, comp in the professional competitive tennis world. And so he was trying to make the comparison. He says, listen, uh, you know, just to give you an idea, highest, strongest competitive tennis player is the woman, and then the 100th strongest, most competitive man player in the world is far above that best woman in tennis. And, uh, and so, of course, um, this is presenting some very real challenges within our society uh, because of that. And so a man brings physical strength that is far superior to that of most women. Now, of course, there's exceptions to the, all of what we're looking at here, but we're looking at general trends and truths that the Bible quite often addresses for you and me. And so the man will abuse that physical and also emotional 
you know, women will break down a lot easier. And so men can subject their wives to emotional abuse a lot more effectively than a woman can do the same to her husband. Now, again, doesn't mean that she never, there's never a guilty wife, but this is a general rule. And, um, and because of that, uh, we need to make sure that as husbands and wives, we pray, God, help me to, do, to, to fulfill my role and your plan for me in my marriage, regardless of where your spouse is at. You need to be able to count yourselves to God first. And so the man can abuse his headship and use his superior physical and emotional strength to control her. But control, friends, is the bad name, is the bad word within this whole mess of what sin brought into the home and into the marriage relationship. Control is the operative word here in concern to both our weaknesses and our sinful natures that we bring into each and every marriage. And so there's some very helpful counsel that we found in the Bible so far. And we also found it in the Sabbath School Quarterly as it's quoting from Adventist Home. And so turn with me in the quarterly if you have it with you. We're going to go to page 86. And in page 86, at the top there, there's a quote from Adventist Home and Ella White. It says, do not compel each other to yield to your wishes. I'm going to read that again. Do not compel each other to yield to your wishes. You cannot do this and retain each other's love. And of course, we always want to retain love, don't we? Be kind, patient, and forbearing, considerate, and courteous. And so friends, both as submissive wives as well as leading husbands, friends, if we both brought as husbands and wives more kindness and poured patience into our marriage, forbearance, consideration, courteousness into the marriage, we would be way better off than trying to control each other no matter what role and no matter what gender we bring into the marriage relationship. Well, let's go back to Ephesians. This is our original passage because time is flying and we're going to run out of time. And I also want to address our husbands here as well. So we're going to go to Ephesians and um, we're going to go to the fifth chapter. In verse 22, there's that verse. It says, wives, submit, your, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And, um, and by the way, that that statement and that counsel, that direction from the Lord himself is written four times in the New Testament. We find it here, Colossians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and then also uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And if we have time, we're going to touch on those just briefly today as well. So it says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as also is Christ the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And so that's the extent, the three verses in this passage that is referring to that of wives. The other passages also give us additional information, helpful information. But for now, we want to go back to that first statement in verse 22, where it says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, the question is, what does it mean to submit to your husband as to the Lord? Well, we want to talk about two ways that is certainly not saying that sometimes husbands or wives will falsely conclude. Uh, the first one is that some have concluded that this means that a wife is to submit to the husband as if he is the Lord. And, uh, and the Bible certainly doesn't teach that because the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so all authority, ultimate authority for every human being, including wives, is God in Christ himself. Unlimited submission is for God alone. If the husband asks his wife to do something displeasing to God, 
something immoral, something heretical. Uh, her submission to God will supersede her submission to her husband. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18, we find the second passage that speaks to wives. And again, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now that's different than as to the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord means that you are to submit to your husband only so far as it is in harmony with your walk with God and the, co the commands and the ways that he has given to you. And, uh, and so uh, we need to be careful on that as well. Now, what this passage also is not saying, it is saying, it is also telling us that a wife is not only to submit to her husband when she agrees with her husband and agrees that he's making a right decision. Uh, even if that decision is not a moral issue, it doesn't conflict with the commandments of God, doesn't conflict with the word of God, some wives have concluded that this, as to the Lord, means to submit only when she's convinced that his decision is right in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, the only judge that she can use to be able to discern that is typically yourself. Friends, to submit to somebody when you only agree with them is not real submission at all, is it? No, of course not. Real submission is tested when you submit even when you don't agree with that authority. Now, friends, I have to confess that sometimes I'm not excited about you know, submitting to the laws and bylaws of my local city or state or country. Um, but nevertheless, I do my best by God's grace to submit to them anyway, even when I disagree. That's true submission, is it not? And the Bible says that we are not only to submit to our husbands as wives, but all Christians are to submit to our governments and authorities. Friends, you know that this would never fly with other authorities in your life. When it comes to your employer, if you only obeyed your employer when you agreed with their decisions, friends, you wouldn't be employed very long. Um, it wouldn't fly with the police that just pulled you over for breaking the law. It wouldn't apply and fly with the government or with the IRS and all other kinds of different authorities that we have in our life. And besides, this interpretation would not be in harmony with 1 Peter 3 and verse 1 that tells wives to submit even to unbelieving husbands. And so the Bible does actually tell us in a parallel passage to Ephesians 5 that even when your husband is not a believer, you should still submit to him and the decisions and leadership that he's making within the home. And by the way, this doesn't mean that God forbids disagreeing with your husband and expressing that disagreement and expressing the reasons why you disagree with the direction or decisions that he's trying to make within the home. Um, in fact, this is important. In fact, I would say that any wise husband would take some real weight and want to know why the wife disagrees with the direction or decisions that he's making and some of those reasons. And that might even sway him and cause him to come to a different conclusion and decision. Friends, there are times as an associate pastor when I express my disagreement with a decision that my senior pastor is making here in the Granite Bay Hilltop Church. And, uh, and he's the head of the church. He's the head of the staff. And so I'll express my disagreement, share with him some reasons why I disagree. But even after that, if he still decides to go in that direction, you know, real submission means that I need to support him as best as I can to support that decision and to submit. And the same thing within the marriage. And so as to the Lord really is telling wives that, they should, that their motive should be to submit to their husbands, not for their husband's sake first, but rather for the Lord's sake. Submit to your husbands as if you were submitting to the Lord. In other words, 
do your, your motive from your heart towards that submission to your husband should not be for your husband first, even though that is helpful, but to the Lord first, knowing that every time you choose, every day that you just choose to submit to your husband, you are choosing to submit to the Lord's um, commands in your life. Now, this should ring loud and clear to single Christian women, by the way. Choose your husband very carefully because the husband that you choose is also the man that you're choosing to be your head for the rest of your life. And so this is no small decision. You know, you know, make sure that you're confident that this is a man that I can feel comfortable and confident in submitting to for the rest of my life. Well, friends, we're going to go just very, very quickly here to uh, the other two passages that talk about wives submitting to their husbands. And of course, these passages don't leave the husbands out, even as Ephesians does, but we're just looking at the wives first and then we're going to spend some time looking at the husbands as well. And so uh, I want to invite you to come to 1 Peter. We're going to uh, 1 Peter in chapter 3. And here's the third time that the Bible speaks to wives in the marriage relationship. It says, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, this is an unbeliever, even if you're husband is an unbeliever, a non-Christian, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And so your submission in an unbelieving, to an unbelieving man could actually be the winning influence when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Now this is not being afraid fear, but like fearing God in other verses as well. This is, is respecting, coming with respect before your husband. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair gold or putting on fine apparel. But rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And so God tells us that a wife that wants to live in the divine design of God for her life will be one that will emphasize her inner beauty. And that's why in Paul's letter, which is a parallel passage we'll find very quickly here, tells us that this is, this is a passage in which don't, don't worry about the outward adornment. Yes, you want to be presentable and be attractive in a reasonable manner, but make it the inner beauty, your character, gentle and quiet spirit that is the most attractive. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And the good and not afraid with any terror, by the way, is the larger context of the letter of Peter, which is to Christians that were living in terror or in a very troublesome time of persecution where the Romans and Jews were uh, imprisoning and torturing and even killing some Christians. And so here we find that, uh, and then verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding. Now, the reason God is telling husbands to dwell with them with understanding is to remember that they're wired different. And God has wired them differently for a reason. And so even though sometimes you don't understand or don't quite get it, he's saying stop and start to get it. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. We talked about that obvious difference in physical and in emotional as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be uh, hindered. And, uh, and then we'll just quickly back up to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to find there an obvious parallel as God guided not only the mind of Peter on this subject, but also Paul as Paul is writing the letter of 1 Timothy and um, uh, chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up with verse 9. 
1 Timothy 2 verse 9 says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Do you see that obvious parallel here? But which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence and with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, but to be in silence. Now, 11 and 12, I think, have been probably some of the most misunderstood and confusing and, and, and vexing kind of verses that we can find on, in this passage. And as I've studied the, the obvious parallelism between Paul's passage here and Peter's passage, is God is addressing the exact same thing. And Peter, it's obviously the man and woman, husband and wife relationship. I think it's the same here as we look at this very obvious parallel passage. And so even though some of us have concluded 11 and 12 is speaking to a, a worship context, I would suggest that the overall evidence is actually saying that it's referring to the marriage relationship. Now remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter counsels women, and God counsels through the apostle Peter, that women should focus on having a gentle and quiet spirit. You pick that up? Now quiet and silent are quite synonymous one with the other. Peter is inspired and he uses the word quiet. Paul is using a synonymous word, silence. In other words, do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the home. Don't, don't let him take, don't let, you know, women, don't try to rule the roost within the church. I mean, within the church, but within the marriage relationship. And, uh, and so I think that is very helpful and it certainly has been for me. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, verse 15 sometimes can also be a real hit scratch and they say, wait a minute, you mean women are to be saved by childbearing? No, it doesn't say saved by childbearing, it says saved in childbearing. And there's a vast difference between the two. We're saved by grace through the faith that we put in Christ alone. And uh, certainly that's, that's what it's saying. And childbearing is intended to mean much more than just giving birth to kids. But it, childbearing is used by Paul here to symbolize motherhood. And so in other words, God is saying one of the greatest, most noble roles that a wife brings into the home is to be able to not only bear children, but to raise children. And friends, you and I know that almost every home, whether they're Christian or not, but certainly Christian homes even more so, the wife dedicates and finds herself dedicated to the raising of her children more than any other role that she has in her life, at least during their growing years. And, uh, and so friends, that's what Paul here is, I believe, is trying to tell us as we look at this subject. All right, so we are quickly running out of time. And by the way, you're saying, wow, you're really looking at every controversial passage you finally possibly find. And, uh, and yeah, hey, if you're going to go, you're going to wade into the topic. Why not go in with both feet, right? And, uh, and so uh, husbands, no, I haven't left you out of this. Um, but it is important for the wife to recognize and knowledge your husband is created and equipped to make him the leader and provider and protector. God is asking wives to enable their husbands by empowering them to fulfill his role. Now, this is some counsel I want to encourage you in. Um, God is not only asking you as a wife to accept your role and to submit to your husband as the leader and head of the household. Um, but he's also asking you to encourage him in that role as well. It's not an easy role to fulfill. 
And we're going to find out that very quickly. Otherwise, he will never be able to be the man. If you do not enable your husbands by empowering him to fulfill this role, he will never be the man and husband that God has intended him to be. It is largely uh, reliant upon the choices of the wife, whether or not she's going to follow this command of God or not. Even if that man wants to be the husband and man that God wants him to be, he never will be unless the wife submits to the husband and follows the commands of God. Otherwise, the man's leadership is forced, and that only makes things worse. Believe me, many husbands can tell you firsthand the biggest mistake you can make is thinking if the husband, if the wife doesn't want to submit and, and, and count me as the head, I'm going to exercise my authority anyway. Uh, friends, you're going to get yourself into a lot of mess very quickly, and it's not going to turn out good. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me, and I will be his Lord from that day forward. Jesus doesn't force his lordship over you, and neither should you as a husband uh, enforce your lordship or leadership within the home over your wife. Um, some uh, wives will uh, tell me that, um, well, my husband makes some very dumb decisions. And, um, of course, we don't want to make that as an excuse. Uh, you have to remember that you also have made some bad decisions in your life as well. Um, this is part of the growth experience. You know, when a man comes in as a brand new husband, he doesn't come in as a perfect head. No, he's coming into new territory. He's learning how to be the head for the first time. You have to give him some, some space to learn and to grow, to forgive him, and, but yet support him. In fact, when he blows it, believe it or not, when he fails as the head and makes a dumb decision, you need to encourage him in his role as head even more. Why? Because the devil's going to come in and say, you're some husband you are, and you call yourself the head of the household? Puh. No, you need, to, you need to kick in as a wife and say, you know, honey, I know that this didn't go the way that you wanted and it's not the way that you thought it would go and it wasn't the best decision, but I forgive you. We're going to pick up the pieces. We're going to go on. And you encourage him in that role. Yeah, but that's not the way my mom did it. Or what about my friends, fellow church members? They're not doing it that way. They're not submitting to their husbands. They don't recognize him as the head. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. God's not calling you to look to your mom or your dad or your friends or your society for your first influence and counsel in your marriage. God is looking for you to look to him. God wants you to look to him as, and say, God, what do you want me to be and do as a wife within the marriage? And that's where we can get ourselves in trouble if we don't have that attitude and we look to those around us rather than to the Lord himself. Well, some of the things we looked at are not easy, but let's move on and talk to husbands here. And uh, so we're going back to Ephesians. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, God now gives some of the weight that comes with being the head of the household. And so Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, we find that God addresses all those who are married and are about to be married. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but this is a high, high standard that God calls us to as husbands. God is saying that you need to love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church and even was willing to be crucified cruelly on a cross in order to redeem you. Do you see the height of the, of the sacrifice and the love and the service that God is calling a husband to bring into the marriage relationship? Do you see the Christ that we are to imitate as husbands when he's around that table in the Last Supper? He's just about to be arrested and go through the most horrible experience any human being has ever gone through and ever will. And yet his disciples and his friends are fighting over who's going to be at his right hand and his left. 
And so here we find the Lord Jesus himself giving that example. He, un, he undoes his outer garment, he removes it, he wraps a towel around himself and he washes each and every one of their feet. That's the husband that God has called you to be as the head of the household. And so this is just as important as the wife to understand her role in supporting him as the head. We need to understand what does it mean to be the head? Well, this is the most important verse in the whole passage. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. It is only when husbands believe and practice the counsel found in those seven verses that a wife can fully enjoy the following counsel that, were, that was given to her from God in the first three verses of that same passage that we're looking at. In other words, the call for submission of wives is not some blanket statement for stubborn, unscrupulous husbands. In fact, there's a very helpful uh, quote again for us uh, on page 81 of our quarterly. And uh, so we just quickly go to that. It's coming from the book Adventist Home written by Ellen White. It says, if the husband is a coarse, rough, boisterous, egotistical, harsh and overbearing man, let him never utter the words that the husband is the head of the wife and that she must submit to him in everything. For he is not the Lord. He is not the husband in the true significance of the term. In other words, just because you went to the altar with her doesn't mean that that makes you the, the dictator and the... Um, and the oppressor within the home, not at all. You're not fulfilling your role as a husband in any way, shape, or form. And so we finish the council here again, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as to the church. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the word, of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church and such. And then in verse 26, it says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And, uh, and so God is saying, listen, to love your wife is to love yourself because she's the better half, as we say. And, uh, and so who would ever abuse their own bodies when they're in their right mind? A husband is to be a head of the household and the head of the marriage, the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, again, when I took you to the Lord's Supper, but as we close here today, I want to also bring you to Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to close there. Matthew chapter 11 are no small words. This is the Lord and the head of the church who is the ultimate model for the head of the wife. In verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Husbands, are you bringing rest to the lives of your wife or are you making her life, her life more of a burden? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Ah, well, look at that, friends. Not only does God tell us, as we read in Peter's counsel, that a wife is to be a gentle and quiet spirit. But now the Lord has also told us that the, wife, the husband is to be a gentle spirit as well. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is, is light. Husband, are you making your wife's life lighter because of your marriage relationship and headship? Or are you making her life heavier? If you want to be like the true head of the church, if you want to be the head of the marriage in the way that God designed for you to be, you will make your life, her life less of a burden. 
And so God is asking you to take the responsibility of the well-being of the entire family and household and marriage and of your wife. God has not called you to be ahead so that you have free labor for the rest of your life. No. God has called you to be able to serve her. Jesus says, I have not got the, the son of man has not come to be served, but to serve. God has called husbands to serve their wives. Jesus says, I am the head of the church and I am there as not only the authority, but also as the servant. And God has called husbands to be the servant of their wives as well. And so, friends, when we, as you see, when we look at the whole story, when we look at the entire picture, indeed, we discover that God has a perfect plan that will bring health and happiness and strength to your marriage and joy in a way that God has always designed for you to be able to bring. Well, friends, I wish we had more time and I could share everything that I had with you, but that's not unusual. I want to encourage you to read the whole study if you haven't already, and, uh, and of course, then to also study for next week as well. Until then, so nice to have you and God bless you. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.